Welcome to this special Indigenous Voices edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. As we walk together towards healing and reconciliation, a few months ago we started Indigenous Voices, a little series within the Salt and Light Hour to help us get to know Indigenous people and to learn about their culture, languages, and spirituality, and also to understand the issues. So far, we've met Harvey McHugh, an accomplished educator from the Georgina Island First Nation in Ontario, Cassidy Karen, the president of the Métis National Council, Julia Kozak, an artist and dancer from the Nisga Nation in British Columbia, and Alan Jameson, an elder with the Cayuga Nation in Ontario. Today, we will meet a young woman, Tamer Linklater, who is really struggling with what it means to be Indigenous and Catholic. And also, we will hear from Earl Dion, a wood-burning artist from the Mohawk Nation who has no problem integrating his Indigenous identity with his Catholic faith. Welcome to our third episode of this Salt and Light Hour special series, Indigenous Voices. Tamer Linklater grew up in foster care in Winnipeg. She later found out that what she always believed about who she was was not all true. So I'm Tamer Linklater. I was raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba, but my birth family comes from Nisichawak Cree Nation and like in the English name is Nelson House and it's like an hour north of Thompson in Manitoba um and the reason I say this is because I was raised in foster care my whole life so my brothers and I there were five of us so four boys and me um the youngest and the only girl so it's kind of nice (laughs) uh we were apprehended when I was around nine months and my oldest brother was nine years and I left when I was 23. Um, I was told that I was adopted and that I was Métis and they didn't like my foster parents didn't know who my birth father was but I found out when I left that I wasn't adopted. I was still like legally under child welfare's care. I just stayed in the same home like they didn't move me around like they do to other kids. Um, I'm not Métis in First Nations and that I've known my birth father my whole life. I just didn't know he was my birth father. Wow. Um, uh, I want to I learn a little bit more about that, about, about your birth father. But can we back up a little bit? So you said that you were told you were Métis? Yes. Um, and when you were growing up, that you thought you were adopted, but it was foster care. Were you growing yeah. up? Were, were your brothers in the same home, or were they in different homes? Um, we were in the same home up until like I was ten. I don't know how old they were, but foster or child welfare either put them in different in different homes, and they just never came back to the house, or they were kicked out for various reasons. And were there any other children in that same home or was it? Yes. 
after my older brothers left, they did foster care. Um, so every year the house, the family dynamics were completely different because we had a set of children plus us. And so, sorry, there were other, the other children were also indigenous? Yes. Okay. And what, what was it like growing up in that home? I mean, did it feel like home or did you feel like you didn't belong there? Um, I never know how to answer this question. Because like some parts of my childhood were nice and like it was like I felt like I belonged there. Um, but I always knew I was different and I just didn't know how or why or anything. And I knew there was something off but I could never quite place my finger on it. Um, and then like I became the youngest as a kid. And then when I got to like my fifth, like about 15 to 20, I was like suddenly the oldest kid in the house and I was taking care of all the younger ones. So it was very confusing, I would say. Um, but my, um, let me say, my foster parents are super Catholic. They were very, they are very devout Catholics and I was raised in the Catholic church and like, it was like what kept me going. Okay. Yeah. And I do want to talk to you about that as well. But, um, but before that, were you, I guess you were in regular public school. Um, you said that you knew that you were different, but you knew you were indigenous, didn't you? I was told I was Métis. I had nobody, like, we never really talked about identity and culture. Like, it just wasn't a thing. So, like, nobody ever sat me down and explained it, and I didn't go looking. Because in my brain, I'm like, oh, well, I'm part Indigenous. Okay, I don't really understand the significance. Um, but my mom, my foster mom's British, and my foster dad's French-Canadian, and they were both, like, devout Catholics. So I'm just like, I can just choose which identity I want to like use and like that's that's okay because that's like my personal choice and I did not know about the history or the significance or anything. Right. And when you were in school, did you feel like you were just like one of the other kids or, or were you singled out? Were there other indigenous children in the same school? I think there were like maybe one or two other Indigenous students. Um, but again, it was never talked about. So it wasn't an issue. It wasn't an issue. No. Um, and, and so tell me about growing up Catholic. You said that that is what sort of kept you going. Yes. Um, so like at first it was just something I did because that's what people do, right? Like we were taken to church, we went to like um, other events and things. And, like I was good friends with like all the priests I had and like the parishes. Um, and it was just something I did and I didn't really understand it. I was just like, okay, sure. Um, and then I was university. University is when things changed for me. Um, I joined uh, the Catholic group at the university. I went to University of Winnipeg and we started talking like drilling down into like the beliefs and like how to connect to creator or God and Jesus and like all the figures. Um, and 
like I kind of just bounced from crisis to crisis growing up and I found that like talking and praying and like going to church and adoration and confession were kind of like they helped me get things off my chest and helped me figure out like what was going on in my life and how I felt about it and like the more I listened to creator and um the more I prayed and the more like work I put into my faith the more important and um the more it just like kept me stable as the one constant thing my entire life yeah and and again I, I want to think I want to go back to that um but you said something about knowing who your birth father was all your life but you didn't know he was your birth father so even mm -hmm. though you were living in a in foster care in this family that you thought was your adopted family you still had a relationship with so how did you know who your birth father was tell us about that um so his name got bounced around by my brothers and like my foster parents like they would just casually mention things um and like I knew his name and he's not somebody that like I, I want to get to know um but he was just like this figure that people refer to a lot when I was growing up so like I was aware of him um I see so you knew you knew of, of him the name but you you didn't actually know him yeah and how about your birth mother uh, same thing. Like she came to visit us as much as she could. Um, and I still don't know why I was apprehended or what happened. Um, and like she tried really hard to get us back from what like I've been told since I started talking to her again. Um, and then something happened between her and the foster parents. And the, my brother said something that was like taken out of context or something. So she just kind of stopped being a presence and like I was super little and she was around more frequently. So like I knew of her, but I didn't know her. And, and you don't have contact with her now? Uh, we do talk, just not as often. And like, I don't have anything to talk to my birth family about. Like we just live such different lives. Right. So let, let's go back to university. So you're you were struggling with different issues, but you really felt that this university, this Catholic group at university um, uh, was helping you. You're feeling comfortable in your Catholic faith, but at the same time, are you also learning a little bit about what it means to be indigenous and indigenous spirituality? Yes. So it was third year university. I took a cultural studies course and a short fiction course. And in both classes, like Thomas King came up in short fiction. And like, I absolutely love Thomas King's work. He's the reason that like, I went into indigenous studies for my master's and he's the reason like, I'm like where I am right now. Um, and then like we talked about like I was introduced to colonialism and like the Indian Act and like sort of broad stroke history things. Um, and then I was looking at my life and I'm like, wait a second. I was like, I was taken from my family. My foster parents are both French Canadian and British. So like they're colonizers and settlers. Um, so that felt weird and things just felt like I was starting to question 
like my history and like why I was with this family and who this family is. And um, I started talking to elders and like asking questions and reading books. Um, and then that kind of just eventually led to like this breakdown with my foster family and I had to leave for my own safety. Um, that's like a whole other conversation. Um, and then, yeah, I moved here to Toronto from Winnipeg, uh, Peterborough from Winnipeg, and, like, I, I read all the books I can, I talk to people, and, like, I'm more aware, and, like, looking back, I mean, what I do now, I'm, like, they almost successfully colonized me, if I haven't left. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that, because, so, I imagine that you're, learning about all these historical things that happened to indigenous I'm doing air quotes indigenous people and then you're reflecting at some point maybe like kind of, kind of the penny dropped and you went hey this is my life um what what's going through your head what's going through your heart at that time um so like I didn't really look at the catholic side of the history like I knew it was a thing but I just couldn't go there I could not because like it was such it still is such like a key part of my life right so um basically I came to this realization that I've been lied to my whole life by everybody I've come into contact with like school with social workers my parents my foster parents um and like it makes me really emotional just like thinking about it it's like they took, like, Sia, child welfare took literally everything from me, my identity, my family, my spirituality, like, and slowly, like, gaining these things back, but, like, all those, like, broad-scale things that happen in Canada kind of happen super micro in my own life, and, like, um, my birth family will talk to me every now and then, and, like, I've learned that I have great grandparents who went to residential schools. I have grandparents who went to residential schools. My parents were in day school and now my generation and my nieces and my nephews are all in child welfare. So like I see the broad scale and I see like the, just like how it's affecting me and my family. And it's, there are no words for the pain. <laughs> I, I can imagine you, you didn't go to residential school, but it sounds like what was happening in residential schools or the purpose of a residential school continued happening through through the child welfare system in, in cases like yours. Um, what have you found out since about what was happening to other Indigenous children, maybe in Manitoba at the same time? Yeah, so I did my thesis, my master's thesis on child welfare in Canada, in Manitoba specifically. Um, and I started reading about like Tina Fontaine, who was murdered while she was in foster care, and Phoenix Sinclair, who was in foster care and then given back to her parents, who then murdered her. Um, and I started talking to other survivors and um like all the things, like I find common things, like the abuse and the, this one I found out last week is that a bunch of us were told that we were Métis, even though we aren't. 
Um, so that's another common theme that's coming out of like what I'm reading and who I'm talking to. Um, and then just like the disconnect from like our parents and your grandparents and like, they know all the history. So when they're talking, they'll just casually name drop or casually mention something. Um, and then I'll be like, whoa, wait a second. Like, what? Like, this is like awful. Um, example, when the children were found last year, uh, one of my aunts on my Facebook page just casually mentioned in a comment, oh, uh, your great uncles went to school and they never came home. And I found out over Facebook in the middle of everything going on. And then like my birth mom would call me and like, she's going through the scars and the trauma that happened at residential schools is the same thing happening now to my generation and my nieces and my nephews. It's the exact same scars when I listen to residential school survivors. It's like, we talk about like being disconnected and not having identity and just feeling lost and alone and confused and like um child welfare started with the schools um there were schools specifically founded for like child welfare reasons for like protection or like poverty and abuse and um and the schools closed but they're still taking indigenous children yeah, and i guess some of our listeners maybe have heard the term the 60s scoop um, but you did not grow up in the 60s, so obviously this was still happening 20 years ago. I was in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's called the Millennial Scoop now. Um, and it's the same idea as the 60s Scoop. It's just a different generation. Um, and there's like the there's more legislation with the 60 with the millennial scoop. It was just a practice in the 60s it was a thing people did it wasn't like a technical policy or document or act or whatever um but with the millennial scoop it is there's acts and like policies and laws and things around child welfare and now instead of mostly white people taking their children it's indigenous social workers doing that work right yeah so the policies switched from the a federal policy to provincial policies. Um, I think that, that that has been made clear. Now, you mentioned the discovery last year of the unmarked graves in Kamloops and how that brought up and stirred up a lot of emotion for you as you were learning. I don't know how much you already knew about the Catholic Church's involvement in the residential school system, um, but you have said that the, your Catholic faith is important for you even still now. I know that you're struggling with it. Can you tell us a little bit about that struggle? Yeah, um, so like, like specifically in Canada, I didn't know this. This is completely new information to me about four years ago. Um, I found out that, oh yeah, no, they ran like a significant chunk of the residential schools and like um, the order of nuns that runs my Catholic school. I'm like 80% think that they also ran a residential school. Um, and I'm like, how can, like, why, like, this isn't creator's work. This isn't what he says in the Bible. This isn't, like, this goes against everything that, like, 
he says in the Bible and what he teaches. And this is like completely contradictory to the church that I know and that kept me safe. Like they like just the horrors that people in the church did. It's like, it's just, it's kind of like, I felt really, I felt really angry like just really angry that such awful things happen and like kind of guilt and shame as well like guilt for being part of an organization an institution that did such awful things and shame for like having it be such an important part of my life like um it's still something i'm struggling with did you feel like you couldn't even practice your Catholic faith? Yeah. Like I stopped praying. I stopped going to church. I stopped reading the Bible. I just, I stopped. I stopped talking to my Catholic friends. Um, and then just like super ignorant comments from people being like, oh, well, the residential schools were like a good thing and like it was well meant and like it wasn't all bad and um just completely disregarding how awful and how damaging they were and how like like just things like that or just like comments people make just how so many people I knew kind of subscribed to like racist thoughts and ideas and like believed in stereotypes and I find myself often having to defend my existence in the church and defending Mm -hmm. like my ancestors and my story to people right and it's exhausting at the same time I you told me though that you've also have have had a lot of good support from priests and people in the church Yes, um, so I'm part of a group called CARE. It's Catholics Acknowledging Indigenous Reconciliation, um, C-A-I-R. And I just like that it's CARE because like, that's such a nice, kind, like welcoming, loving word. Um, and y'all, y'all really like it. So we meet about once a month and there's this priest, Father John, Father John Purdue, um he's been with me through a lot of things he like um he's come to visit me at like crisis centers and um and like he sits and he listens and he just like lets me be me he lets me be angry and confused and he um so in care we share it's for primarily indigenous uh, people who are Catholic and we just talk about like what it's like to be indigenous and Catholics and the challenges that we face and like it's a form where we can be ourselves without being judged and Father John's part of this and like he doesn't always know what to do or say um, and like but he doesn't like scold us or defend the church or he just sits there and listens and it's people like Father John, like that is reconciliation. That is the work that people need to be doing. It's not easy and it's uncomfortable. And like, you're not always gonna know what to do or say, but just sitting there listening and absorbing, and reflecting is like important. And Father John is the only reason that I'm still like part of the 
I still consider myself Catholic and why I'm doing this interview and yeah like there are people who want to do the work it's just hard finding them sometimes yeah hopefully through you participating in this interview we'll be able to find more and more people how do you feel about the the delegation that went to Rome and the words of the Holy Father and the fact that the Holy Father might come to Canada Yes, um, I followed it really closely. I will admit I was a bit skeptical, um, just given like my history and uh, just people's responses. Um, but I will say it was real, like, I feel like from what I've heard, the Pope really did listen and he did learn. And like, it's a good step. It's a good symbolic step. Um, and it was nice and like it didn't take everything away, it didn't take the pain away, but like it was comforting to know that like our pain is being acknowledged. Um, but it's a good step and I have like cautiously optimistic. I think that, that as in any work of reconciliation, it's hard work and it requires conversion and that's also hard work. Um, if you were to tell Canadians or maybe Canadian Catholics one thing that you think that they need to know so, so that we can begin this, this walking together on the path of healing and reconciliation, what would it be? I was not prepared for that question. Um, <laughs> uh, it's going to be hard work and you're going to be uncomfortable and like have all these emotions and like it's messy work but it's important work and it doesn't necessarily have to be like the big grand gestures it could also be like talking to an indigenous person befriending them and like sitting with them as like they process things it doesn't have to be this big grand complicated thing yeah thank you i think that's so important it's just listening to each other um Tamer, thank you. I'm glad you're doing better. And, and thank you for sharing sharing with us a little bit about who you are uh, today. Thank you so much for providing this space. Tamer made me think how complex these issues are and how deep the trauma caused by certain colonial practices can be. Many indigenous people are Catholic, and it is possible to be Catholic and indigenous at the same time. It is also possible to find comfort and support in the church while at the same time struggle with certain things that members of the church did or the role that the church may have officially played in a system that caused great harm to a group of people. At the same time, it is encouraging to know that education is a valuable tool to help all of us move through truth, to justice, into healing and reconciliation, and to remember that the work of reconciliation is hard work and it doesn't necessarily have to be a grand gesture, just sitting with each other, listening to each other, getting to know each other. That is where the real work of reconciliation happens. I'm Deacon Pedro, and you're listening to a special Indigenous Voices edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Listen to all our programs at eselmedia.org podcast.
Earl Dion belongs to the Wolf Clan of the Mohawk Nation in southern Ontario. He grew up in St. Regis, Ontario and has great memories of the church growing up and a great devotion to St. Kateri Tekakwitha. My family's from Akwazasne. That means in Mohawk, the land where the partridge drums. And um, my dad, he started ironwork in, uh, in the Buffalo area. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a few companies. So we always refer to, I always known Akwazasne as uh, like a little slow, we always say going up home. So when, because it's kind of like the northern part of uh, New York State where it meets Quebec and Ontario. Okay, so you grew up in in New York State. Is where you were you born there? Uh, no, I, I I was born um, in Akwesasne, but my dad about the age of uh, two, you know, he's when he started working more steady. He, he moved my mom and myself uh, down into Western New York area because I had another uncle that was also ironworking. So so he just moved us to the Western New York area because that's where he he was with a couple companies and. And so I would just kind of visit back up in Akwazasne on summer vacations and everything. And and was it a, a big family? Did you have? Did you grow up uh, with uncles and aunties and or? Yeah, yeah, I had lots of aunties. Uh, I had, my mom has eight sisters and one wow. brother. So and and so I had quite a bit of family, you know, up up in Akwazasne or up home. Yeah, and uh, just but my. Just- Sorry, I was going to say for our listeners that maybe Akwesasne is is the Cornwall area. No, that's the, that's actually uh, Saint Regis uh, Reserve, but they just the traditional right word they they use to this is to call it Akwesasne. Yes, now no. I, so so so, and was it in a reserve, the Saint Regis Reserve, where you was your family in the reserve? Yeah, that's where my grandparents grew up, right in St. Regis. My, my, my grandfather grew up on St. Regis Island, and that's right in the Thousand Islands there where, right. where, where, where the, uh, Ontario, Quebec, and New York State kind of come together. So there's a lot, a lot of boundaries and borders right in that, in that area. Right. Was it common for people in your community to sort of go back and forth between Canada and the U.S.? Oh yeah, my my aunt. She's ninety years old. Just finished a book. She just finished her book, memoirs of, because my mom and all the sisters and my my grandmother and and grandfather, they they grew up at the. Well, a lot of them grew up for a while there at the International Hotel, which sat right on the boundary line. Okay. Half the half the hotel sat in Quebec, and the other half sat in New York State. So that that was quite different. They'd have Mounties coming in one door and. And so if, if some of the people were drinking beers, they'd move to the other side of the room to be in the New York state side and they wouldn't be asked any questions or, or harassed in any way. And, and then vice versa, you'd have the New York state troopers come in. So half the hotel was on one half of the border and the other half was, you know, in Canada. So, you know, there was a marker right in front of the hotel. So yeah, it was very interesting. And interesting. Plus, yeah. Plus with growing up with the islands and, but my grandmother, Josephine Sawadis, she pretty much ran everything. And I think she was the influence of our family as far as the Catholicism. Uh, she pushed all, you know, she made all the, her daughters and, and, and son take catechism classes. Right. And that's kind of, you know, continued through my whole 
family, I, I've, um, you know, noticed that she was kind of the one that put all that in motion and it's yeah. kind of fil filtered through down the generations. We see, you know, I see influences of that, you know, right, right through my entire life, even up till today. Mm -hmm. Do you know what your grandmother was her family Catholic as well? Do you know how many generations back or, or how did she end up in the Catholic church? Do you yeah, know? I, I'm going to inquire more about that, but I do know that when father Jacobs was up, up at the reserve, he was a big influence. He's, he was, his father was an iron worker from Ganawake. He was Mohawk and he spoke uh, the Mohawk language and he, he taught a lot of the prayers and did mass you know, in the Mohawk. And uh, so I know he was a big influence, like with our family, you know, he probably performed a lot of the marriages at the St. Regis church. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's like, it goes back. I don't know who would have influenced father Jacobs to want to become a priest. Cause um, you know, I'm, I'm sure his mother might've had a hand in that or, or maybe he, you know, seeing other priests, maybe that influenced them, but and he spent his entire priesthood, I think, working up in at the St. Regis Reserve or Akwazasne. And wow. he was very he 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 had a very you know good influence for you know, and he would always kind of joke around and say that he has to answer to um, a bishop in New York State and also a bishop in Ontario and a bishop in Quebec. Right, right. Because that, that was all his jurisdiction. So you know, I've, I've you know, because I've kind of look back into these influences because then my mom would be the next one to really um for me as an only child to, to kind of you know push the catholic faith and i've seen it with other aunties i'd see prayer cards of saint godalita Gaguita pinned on the wall and and so you know and then on down the line later on i'd see more evidence of um you know we weren't the strongest church going catholics but that always seemed to, you know, show itself even through some of my uncles and aunties, mm -hmm. you know, some of them went to the Godali conferences faithfully. And yeah, my, my uncle, uh, Dickie Francis joined the Knights of Columbus. And wow. so, you know, that kind of um, made me want to follow along. And, and, and also it was because of Godali to it was kind of, everybody looked forward to it. It was like my Mohawk culture, Although it was deeply rooted in nature, she, it was kind of guided by, mm -hmm. she was like the sun that guided um, how, you know, to keep everything kind of on course. So you would say that for you, that your experience growing up, there was a good relationship between the Catholic church and the indigenous community. I think so. I think like when say somebody would pass away, like an aunt or an uncle, maybe they'd have a mass said, and we'd always see which cousins were like present at the mass <laughs> you know so then it would surprise me who would show up and some cousins are always there some aunts are always there but as things are getting older you know i i, I just pay attention to how you know but it, it has been i think it's been a good influence because i've 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 always had really good aunties and uncles that treated me like a second set of parents yeah. i can never say i've been treated cruelly from any of my aunts or uncles I've never seen any wildness in any of the households and my cousins have all been, been, I couldn't ask for better cousins. And I think that's a direct um, correlation to the, 
to the to the structure of following along in this yeah in, yeah you know and, the church and and you you've to- told me in the past about father jacobs and 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 what an influence he was for you and the other your friends growing up your family growing up and i guess uh, just for our listeners again you've mentioned godly a few times and in case they're not sure who that is that's saint Cattery. Um, yes. but, but you use the Mohawk pronunciation, Gadli de Gaguitha. Um, mm-hmm. Did you grow up knowing about her? Was that a common sort of knowledge about this, this woman? She wouldn't have been a saint yet. Yeah, she wasn't a saint. She, um, well, I know she was beatified in, I think, 81 or in a, a, right. 80, maybe yeah. 80. But I mean, her name, from the time I could even first talk, I think Gadli de Gaguitha saying her name, and as a young boy, it made me feel like I knew how to speak Mohawk because her name just flows nicely that way. And yeah. so she she was really impressed on on me as a child and my other cousins. We've always looked at her as kind of like a saint already, even though mm-hmm. she wasn't officially canonized. She had that much of an influence. And I and I think, you know, when I later on when I got my spinal cord injury, I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's why I kind of gravitated towards her. We always it's funny, our household never had anything native in a house, like pictures or artwork. It's almost like when my father settled us in the Western New York area, we were trying to be almost like uh, those families you'd see in a Sears catalog, right. more like, and, and not so much with the native things. We have, have all the, the modern, you know, trappings of the early 70s and late 60s. The only thing that was native in our house was a statuette. Of uh, Saint Catalina Gaguita that, that sat on our fireplace. Oh yeah. Do, do when, you do you think that the reason why there weren't any sort of indigenous uh, images in the house was because nobody was thinking about that, or where it's not like your family was trying to not be indigenous? Where was there any of that going on? I think only in the ways that for opportunity and to kind of um, to blend in, to blend in better, and to I just think at that time and people. You know, like even in the Catholic, when I was, they, my father signed me up for Catholic school and I went, I was probably, I think one of the only cousins that went to Catholic school, kindergarten through eighth grade. And um, at that time, like even in Catholic school, they weren't that um, wanting to know so much of, like, about uh, my, my culture. It was kind of something that um, it, it wasn't really, uh, I don't know, like it just, it wasn't so much they were interested in it. Then later on when I taught in the schools, I think the Catholic schools and universities are the ones that put the most funding and want to have everything very genuine and they want to know the most about it. So it's really gone from one end of the spectrum all the way to the other one. To the other, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think, and you've told me this before, that it's more of a, the, the Catholic faith for you and your family was more of a cultural thing than it was almost as a practice um right that that it was the the ritual um more so than it, the beliefs per se is that fair to for for yeah. me to say yeah like one time when i did my first craft show at, at godalee hall i put out my wood burnings and and some of the wood burnings had images of godalee saint Catherine on there and mm-hmm. i remember this one native woman she come up to my table and she pointed real hard with her finger tapping loudly at the at the wood burning plaques and she said that's not our way she just mumbled that under her and gave mm-hmm. me a real nasty look 
And I kind of was taken aback. Like I, I think I might have even taken the plaques off the table, or because I didn't know. I, I just I'm trying to blend in with the Saint the Saint Regis, you know, with this craft show, and and I was new at doing my art. Later mm -hmm. on, I just kind of um, somebody, you know, saying that like that's not our way. But then later, I just thought about it. And I thought that is my family's way. It is our way because all the funerals and weddings and baptisms, everything kind of came through St. Regis Church, mm -hmm. you know, and then like my uncle Nelson, he was sick. He passed away since, but I've talked with him a few times. We have some heart to heart talks and he would always tell me how, when they sing the, the Lord's prayer in Mohawk, how that was the most beautiful thing to him in the mass. And when he went through his cancer, he um, was telling me to go see St. Joseph's in Montreal and mm -hmm. St. Anne de Beaupre's, at those churches, you know, like to, to make a point of going up there to see it. Cause he was telling me about the, right. the crutches and everything there and the canes hanging there on the mm -hmm. wall. And so those kind of things I pay attention to because when he was really had his back against the wall with his health, it was kind of like, again, it was the Catholic faith or it was those things that gave him comfort. And, and you know, and I've, always paid attention to that i've always remembered that yeah you you mentioned your your wood burning and i think that it's fair to say that that's your main medium for art but you do other kinds of art did you always want to be an artist how did you the art how did you start uh finding interest in in the arts Where yeah probably from my cousins when i would be up in aquazesne we were my, my aunt dorothy's uh we really didn't watch tv or anything like we had to go pump water at the well yeah. you know and there was no running you know we had our houses and everything but we just there was a lot of drawing and, and a lot of activities crafts and my cousins were always really good like even just doing coloring books that their their colored pages were so perfect like and mine just mm -hmm. never looked i never thought i'd measure up as i always admired my cousin's art and um but as an only child that was just a way that it was for entertainment for me to mm -hmm. just draw all the time, especially if my parents were visiting with other adults and I was bored. I would just, they would give me some, you know, pencils or, or pens and, and blank paper. And that would just keep me busy, you know, almost all the time. And then mm -hmm. uh, over time, you just kind of find you have a knack for it and your, and your skill level kind of gets better, you know, the more you practice with yeah. things like that. So when you finished high school, did you know that you wanted to go to university? How, how was that transition for you? Or yeah, I think the, yeah, the only reason I graduated from high school, I think was because of the art, you know, uh -huh. my, and, uh, and our teacher really told me I should go to college and continue on in, in that field, you mm -hmm. know, arts. And, and, and that, that is what I ended up doing, you yeah. know, in a roundabout way, I ended up going back you know, to that same college and um, taking all the different arts and also the art education uh, courses. Yeah. And, and you became an educator, um, not just for the art, but also to, to teach young people particularly about a little bit about your culture and the indigenous traditions. Why, mm -hmm. why do you feel that that's important? Um, I think it all stemmed from when I got my car accident and when I was in a, when I was in a hospital and um, mm -hmm. I, I think when I, when things turned around, like, like I, I was, when I was praying to St. Um, 
I don't know. It's like in that moment, so many things flashed through it, including my childhood in Akwazasne. It was like the simplest and happiest times of my life. And um, that, and it, it just always uh, s- stuck with me to, I don't know. It's like everything blended together. It's like the nature, uh, her influence, and and and, all, and and then the healing influence of the art. Like I, w- I, I had to start using my opposite hand, and mm-hmm. I use big fo- foam grips. So that there was always that healing thread to it, and I just I've kept that always as a part of my programs. When I did start to teach in schools, I always, you know, tied the healing together with the art, and also together with the native. Uh, cultural things you know because i think playing with the wood and with the fire it was very easy to kind of tie all those things together tell us a little bit when you go to schools now um how do how do you tie that in when you when you talk to the students and you're you're trying to get them because you you'll get them to do a little bit of art themselves or or to find Mm -hmm. the the story that they want to tell how do you explain to them the healing part yeah, well, like when we did our truth and reconciliation classes, we did the the secret path book, uh, and we also had little we did paddles because there was a, a longhouse um, thing called turning of the ashes, and so we'd use some of those themes, especially turning of the ashes. We, we'd always start our classes off with um, with what we call like uh, our sacred fire. Mm-hmm. We'd, we'd we'd always get our chairs in a circle. And then we'd, we'd say there's this fire in the middle. Like it's always, it's like going back in time in your mind. It was our, our 400 year old lodge and, and we'd have that fire in the center. And, and so that we would, you know, in the beginning, we would always just introduce ourselves. We had a nice big Turkey feather wrapped in leather. We passed that around. Mm-hmm. So we would, and then, and then we'd start to ask like, you know, name, introduce favorite animal then we'd ask like what's the hardest thing you've ever had to do and that was just kind of to really um get people to i don't know because when you have that feather in your hand and we're all sitting with nothing between each other just facing each other in that circle you know sometimes that's when you get a lot of some of the difficult sharing Mm because it was especially with the truth and reconciliation it was important to because everybody had some kind of um struggle or, or things that was sad to them or, or something that really would get them tied into what we were trying to do with our with our project and that, that would be you know on the grade school level high school level you know some of the things might be might might be it was very powerful like in the one high school class this, this brother um come out and said about i mean this this boy he was probably a senior in high school and he come out and talked about his brother's suicide and after our class was over the teacher come up to us and just said i want to thank you because i've had that boy in my class for like three years and i never even knew that that had happened to him that his brother committed suicide so sometimes things like that will come out and and if there's tears we've learned to bring water and and tissues Mm -hmm. and 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 my jackie i think you've, you've met jackie in the past she was facilitated with me yeah. in the classrooms and she's Ojibwe. So she would collect the tissues and always tell them that these tears are valued and that we'd collect them and she'd return them into like, say the, the river, or return them to the water. Mm-hmm. And we'd always say that they strengthened our fire. Cause if it was grade school, a lot of times the, the, a grandparent might have cancer or something. And 
that would be really like grandparents, especially with grade school kids was really uh, something that was important to them. And so, and the sharing would just get different at, through the different grade levels, but in any way that, that strengthened our fire. And then later when we started to do the burning, you know, and, and we, so we'd be using a fire in a more enjoyable way. Later, we put on some native relaxing flute music right now and, uh, and we burn in our on our projects and and that was the nicer part so it was like a roller coaster it mm-hmm. was like because they, they got when they a lot of them you know we and we had techniques and everything to to get them to be uh to reach down deep we call it feeding our fire uh good wood because there's like that green wood that's smoky and in, mm-hmm. that's not a good wood to put in a and that's the kids that just didn't want to that they would just shrug their shoulders or try to just mimic or try to maybe get a laugh. And we, we wouldn't want any of that kind of wood. It was the ones that really uh, were courageous and, and, and spoke about something that wasn't always easy. Maybe the first time that they brought this up and, and that was a, a, a very healing thing. And then we'd protect that fire. We'd protect everybody who shared that way. Yeah. You know, Earl and I think that all came from the Gutta Lee thing. I think that, like I said, she kind of guide, guided everything, including me going back to school to be an art teacher. Mm-hmm. Earl, there's, there's maybe not so much now, but a year ago, I can think there was a lot of anger uh, among indigenous people, particularly towards the Catholic Church. Um, there were people burning churches down and, and uh, mm-hmm. or vandalizing churches what what would you say to some of those people that are in some cases rightfully angry what would you say to them well i, I was thinking of this because you know i knew we were going to be having this talk and i thought about our truth and reconciliation because there's so many things i've learned from and we, we i think as a good teacher you should learn your your classrooms are like a microcosm of like the entire society and these kids are going to be growing up and running our world. And I just find it's going to be harmful to, to cloak human suffering in anything that's exclusive, you know, and an exclusivity, like, like cultural things, like in the one school, um, some things they would do that was recommended was to take children to the residential school. They used to call it the mush hole in Brantford. And, and we'd find that the kids would be uh, in tears from the stories they would hear. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they weren't just ready for that kind of like t- like to revisit such like ho- the horrible things. It was kind of like almost too much for the students. And in a, in the one case, they had an altercation. One boy, I don't you know, made a little uh, joke of, or made fun or laughter or something. And it and they you know they got hitting each other. It, you know and you know once students were striking each other. And the teacher told us about this. It was concern. And so we have, we addressed that the next time we had them in our circles, we talked about, you know, the, you know, about how that wasn't right, but that's the kind of things when you, when you have sadness and anger and that vulnerability to, you know, it's, I don't think to, you know, to dwell in, in those, those, the, those tragic tragedies, you know, it's very, you gotta be very careful because you open people up, and sometimes when they're just a mixed group, like a field trip, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I just find, you know, I think it's different when, like I mentioned, our circles where there was tears and some deep sharing and everything. I think it's different when you share together. I think everybody has a story and, and has, has something that they want to speak on. And, and, and I think 
you know, to, to um, allow each other to, to have voice mm-hmm. and, and to, sh- to share it in a sadness rather than it's, it's like when I used to do my native art, I always would visit uh, at the, at the six nations. I would always want to get the genuine glass beads and good deerskin leather. I'd want everything to be so authentic, like real feathers. If my pieces had any feathers on them and I would use like, you know, I would have the stories that my art told to be real things from our culture. So it's like you're trying to make everything really genuine. But when people are trying to feel um, a sadness or trying to join in with this truth and reconciliation, I think you have to allow them. You can't just be like, well, this is our sadness, not yours. Mm-hmm. Or you can't be you can't be a culture cop. I think that's really something that can happen really easy. And I, and I don't and I think it's better to just, you know, to let everybody to just, you know, share in it in their own way. I think that's the, and not, not to, not to uh, make, to take ownership of those, those things. And that's, that's difficult work. And it's, it's a work that takes a long time. What, what do you think that the Catholic church in this country, in Canada has to do or should do to, that would be a clear sign of reconciliation? Um, I don't know. I think I, I see it happening, you know, even today, like it's just a different world we live in. And I think if you, you know, it's just going to, it's just going to take time. I think mm-hmm. in God and God's time, like I think in a, cause it's such a new world. I pay attention to things. I, you know, there's, I think they're out there. It's like the hidden seeds of faith are still, being sown like with and St. Regis or Akwazasne, like when I listen to um, like CKON, the radio station up there, I me I stream it here because me mm-hmm. and my mom listen to it every morning. And sometimes when they do the obituaries, I'll, I'll hear like this maybe a man or a woman and they have gotten married at St. Regis Church and they have such a big family with a lot of grandkids and um, and the activities that they did in their life, volunteering. Maybe one of them maybe coached lacrosse or a ball club, and you just see what a full, rich life, and um, and they want to be buried at the St. Regis Church. And when I, but some people might not pay attention when I hear the church part, and I and I and I see what a like long life that they've had, and and, and they seem like they were just good members of the community, mm-hmm. and and I, and I just can you know I don't think that happens by accident. I think. That's kind of like how our family was. I think that that's an undercurrent, you know, of, of that that structure or following that that light. You know, I, I just think that we have to be very have, be patient. We just can't look at everything in, in an all one sided way because I think it it can be harmful and it doesn't give the true true picture. I think some things have to be on a different time frame. Yeah, Earl, um, we have to leave it there, but. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about about you and who you are and what you do and and, and your your experience. Um, I think it's a, an experience that a lot of people um, don't expect from Indigenous people. Certainly, what's what we've been hearing lately. So, thank you for sharing a little bit of your story with us today. And I'm uh, and thank you for your friendship. And I'm sure you and I will continue these conversations uh, over the next months. But thank you for the little bit you've shared today. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Deacon Pedro. It was a pleasure.
reminded me that there have been indigenous Catholics for many generations, certainly since St. Katerita Kekwitha lived in the 17th century. Many indigenous people have grown up in the church and have no problem integrating their indigenous identity and spirituality with their Catholic faith. Again, Earl highlights the importance of education, but also about being able to open up and be honest, not just with each other, but with ourselves, being able to face our anger, our sadness, our pain, and our vulnerabilities. To learn more about all Indigenous issues, especially as they intersect with the Catholic Church, you can visit our website, slmedia.org healing-reconciliation-journey. To listen to all our Salt and Light Hour programs, and especially to other Indigenous Voices episodes, visit us at slmedia.org podcast. I'm Deacon Pedro. Thank you for listening to this special Indigenous Voices edition of the Salt and Light Hour.